and he just said, you know that the good ones will, will be okay, like we'll be fine. And and to have him just ring me and tell me that was was really quite good. You know, like that that buoyed me quite a lot because as my mind is, I was just racing to the point where, you know, what if this doesn't come back? What if we don't get through this? You know, what, what happens then? We continue with our week-long mini-series at Carlton Wine Room, following on from yesterday's launch episode with head chef Connor Pomroy. Today, we're with co-owner Andrew Joy. It's really thanks to Andy that this series exists. He got in touch with me a couple of months ago as he was grappling with the implications of Connor's brain tumour. Go back to the previous episode to catch up on that if you need to. Out of that discussion came the idea of presenting a more rounded and deeper portrait of a venue, a different way to get to know the amazing animal that is a restaurant. So, in this second episode, we chat to a business owner. Andrew Joy grew up immersed in the notion that food and wine were central to life. Like many of the personnel at Carlton Wine Room, Andy is an Andrew McConnell alumnus, and when he left to open Carlton Wine Room in 2018, it was the first restaurant he'd owned. Let's head back in to Carlton Wine Room. Uh, my name's Andrew Joy. I'm from the Carlton Wine Room. Carlton Wine Room was an, an idea sparked by Travis Howe and myself um, a while ago um, when we were on a trip to New Zealand uh, for a wine junket sort of thing. But um, we sort of came up with the idea that we might want to do something one day and then it sort of evolved from there. It took a long time to get to the point where it is, but yeah, Carlton Wine Room evolved out of a, a want to, you know, further our careers, I suppose, in, in many ways in the respective jobs we were doing at the time as wine buyers. So, yeah, it's just a wine-focused venue that we, you know, wanted to... Um, to you know get up and dig ourselves into so we've done that yeah that's what it is we had two silent partners um who we used to take care of uh in you know restaurants and we sort of approached them um in uh, probably the tail end of 2017 i suppose and then that evolved into a lunch that we had together and um at that lunch we were presented with a series of blind wines and challenged to identify those wines over lunch and we did that and then um, from that lunch uh, turned into a, a bit of a late night talking through the idea of maybe doing something together and from that we sort of uh, started looking around for sites and venues and it just so happened that we were walking uh, later in you know later in that end of 2017 we we're walking past the Carlton Wine Room and we all just sort of looked at it and went what about that and um, it was there it was already an existing site and was running as the Carlton Wine Room and um, I'd worked across the road from there at 312 for quite a while and I always loved that building and always thought that it could really be an amazing place. And Jay Bessel, who originally set up the Carlton Wine Room, also obviously saw that. And we just saw the opportunity to potentially get in and um, approach the, uh, the current owners there. So we approached them and, and it was for sale. So we, we purchased it and then we flipped it and uh, did a bit of a, a small reno. And so opened it at the start of 2018 um, as, as the cart wine room that we know now. Not every hospitality professional grows up surrounded by extraordinary food and wine. But Andy did, thanks to his father, Kevin, a hugely committed, amazingly extravagant cook and entertainer. I think there's a photograph of me on a tricycle when I was quite young holding a bottle of Dalgowney uh, Cabernet or something like, like 19... 78 or 1980 vintage whatever I don't think I was drinking I was just holding it but um, that like 
I just remember Dad having amazing dinner parties, like, like you know, scallops baked in the half shell, like sort of thing. Like he he would do scallop mornay or just so, like like crazy dishes, like things that were just you know strawberry tarts that were just perfection. Um, but I remember like floating around those tables when I was a kid and sort of like I'd help Dad carry you know I'd, I'd you know take the food out to the table for all his, his guests that he'd have and he'd have all the it'd be perfect like you know set up with all the right dishes for all the right things and you know I, I think you know we didn't really think much of it when we were kids but like looking back on it it was, like, it was pretty extravagant like it was pretty outrageous what he was doing um you know yeah he really like pushed the cooking to another level that you wouldn't normally see in a house you know so um i think his friends benefited quite greatly <laughs> from his generosity over the years, you know, like um, he would always be making huge terrines for people for their parties and like massive batches of incredible sausage rolls and all these sort of things. And like, it was just a huge part of the, of our, of our upbringing was just that, that generosity of food. And um, yeah, the dinner party certainly like, you know, you know, trying to sneak some chocolates off the table when I was, you know, cleaning up after they'd finished was always a good thing. And then obviously dad would put on Neil Diamond at some point and then that'd be the end of the evening. But, um, you know, it's, it was, um, yeah, it was interesting. It was an interesting, um, thing to see that sort of, you know, incredible amount of food come out and, but there's just the, the different like depth of food that he'd make. I mean, we had some Thai students that were at uh, a boarding school that my mum taught at and they, we befriended them. I befriended them because they were both, they were skateboarders as well. And I was a skateboarder and, and they would use the, they'd come over on the weekend and dad would just cook Thai food for them all weekend. And they were so nostalgic about it and so humbled by the fact that this, you know, guy in Ballarat would, would put up dishes that were equal to what they'd be receiving when they were home in Bangkok that they, um, yeah, they were quite, quite chuffed with that. And then in fact, dad went and I went and stayed with their family for a couple of months and then, um, dad actually went over with my sister later on and, and, um, saw them too. So like yeah, his connection with people through food has been like pretty, pretty impressive, you know? <laughs> mm. But I, I, like, honestly, I, I think mum maybe, maybe cooked maybe three or four meals for me in my entire life. I'm not sure. <laughs> it was probably burnt toast or something, but yeah, God bless my mother. She's the dearest, most amazing woman ever and 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 fierce a fierce scottish lady but um yeah not a great cook <laughs> with food such an integral part of family life and conversation and with the family buying Purin vineyard it wasn't a huge stretch for andrew to build a career in food food and wine definitely like i have to like celebrate my dad in this regard like um dad was an architect um and but he was also, uh, is, is, he still is an incredible cook. Um, like, amazing, like, global, like, put any, like, anything you ask of he, him, he can make. Like, it's incredible. So, we grew up with a pretty strong food conversation in, in the house. So, um, there was always food around. We were always out fishing or we'd be, you know, we'd grew up um, parts, we partially grew up in the country and then moved into Ballarat, but we were always out hunting or foraging for mushrooms. And I didn't really think much of it when I was younger, but looking back on it, it's like, it wasn't a normal way to interact with food. Like, I mean, dad would get us up super early on a 
Saturday morning at like five o'clock and we'd drive to Melbourne to go to the Vic Market so that he could purchase, you know, food for the weekend to cook whatever dish he would, would you know, want to make for that weekend. And like we'd literally drive down there and then just drive back. And um, that was the outing for the Saturday morning. And then dad would just make some amazing stuff. So yeah, I've got it, yeah, really in terms of my understanding of food, it certainly is uh, my dad, Kevin, who, who did a lot of that. And like he, like when we first started Carlton Wine Room, he was cooking staff meal once a week, which, you know, I'd love to get him to be able to get back to do that. But um, it, he's getting on now a little bit. But, um, yeah, it's, he, he's certainly the, the cornerstone of that. And then in so in 1999, we purchased a property as well to set up a vineyard. So that sort of really started to inform my understanding of wine uh, even more, even though I'd been working in, in wine for a while. Uh, both in Ballarat and then Melbourne uh, with Philip Murphy's and Turak and stuff like that. We sort of always worked around wine stores. I worked for Randall Pollard in wine shops as well. As well. And um, so, yeah, I think that process of setting up a property and getting that really understanding of, of you know, ground up what wine, you know, what, what influences it and uh, how, you know, you can change and affect things through land management as well, I think has sort of informed my understanding to a greater depth um, of wine itself, you know. So, yeah, it's my, my tie with food and, and actual production is, um, yeah, it's pretty deep. Like, that's, yeah, so, what, 22 years now involved in that piece of land, which is Pyrin Vineyard out in the Pyrenees Mountains. So, yeah, it's a, an amazing thing to see evolve. And, um, yeah, I think that's sort of definitely informed it, you know, definitely. It was a particular bottle of Burgundy that turned Andy from an appreciator of a nice drop into something of a wine scholar. He knew the wine world would always intrigue him, challenge him, and offer him an ever-changing field of interest and enterprise. My evolution with wine, probably, I saw, like, they're both great things that have, have a huge amount of depth of knowledge. Like that's what I love about it. Like I love about that about both sides of it. Like you, you can you can spend all of your life trying to learn everything, but you'll never really ever get there. And there's always going to be something else, you know. And I think with food, I saw that yeah, that was part of it. But I think also that the the wine side of things for me uh, really evolved from working with with people like Randall Pollard uh, at uh, Randall's in Albert Park, where. I mean, I remember he gave me a bottle of my uh, Burgundy to take home with me, and I remember sitting there and study, like studying this wine for like I think five hours. I was just I was in a share house and I had a had a set of headphones on, and I think it was like a, um, a Robert Chevion, New St. George. Can't really remember the vintage, but like it, 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 like I just remember that wine changed the way I really understood like my thinking about wine because it was so expansive and, and the depth of flavor. And it was just so incredible that I, you know, I had literally had my headphones on completely ignored my entire, all of my housemates for I think pretty much five hours straight while I just like looked at this wine in depth. And like, I think that's for me what, what intrigued me about wine was it had such an incredible way of, changing perception and you know and also like to, just the way that wines would evolve as well if you're looking at older ones compared to newer ones and i think that yeah the depth in in wine i found was was um was what attracted me to it and and then also understanding farming practices as well like there's just so much to learn like it's a it's incredibly you know um 
you know, incredibly expansive knowledge base that you need to have. And then you've got, you know, you know, with also like working towards regenerative agricultural things where you can actually give back to the land. I think, man, you've got this great opportunity to do all this other stuff. So, yeah, so like I think the vineyard really pushed me to be more involved as well. But um, I think just my desire to know more was, was the thing I think that really like, you know, forced me, well, not forced me, but like intrigued me to get into wine more. And, and then an opportunity came up at Cumulus to be the wine buyer there, um, which I, initially I was actually quite hesitant about, but then I thought, well, why not? Like, if you're going to do it, you might as well do it. So I sort of threw myself in at that point, and that's when I really became quite serious about it all. And, um, yeah, that sort of uh, carried on from there. Chef and restaurateur Andrew McConnell is a giant in the Melbourne hospitality industry. Not only has he created some of the city's most interesting, innovative and iconic restaurants, Cutler & Co, Supernormal and Cumulus Inc among them, his Trader House group has acted as a rigorous restaurant university with alumni like Andrew Joy moving on to put their own stamp on the city's dining scene. So when I left to set up the Cut Wine Room, that was when I, I was leaving, I left Marion which was my last project with Andrew um, and I, I thank Andrew for everything, like realistically, he he's an incredible operator. Um, and when I said to him that, like, I'm thinking of doing, you know, doing something, and I was really nervous, to, really nervous because, like, I spent so much time working with him. But he just turned around and said, "He, he said, you'd be mad not to do something." And I'm like, "Well, if you say that, then I'm happy to to do that." And but like I, you know, I started with Andrew at three one two. And to see um, that evolve, you know, that whole thing evolve from one restaurant to what it is now, I mean, like, yeah, that's that's an amazing story in itself. And to witness that, I, I was really privileged to be part of it. And I, I, I still feel that now. You know, I feel quite proud about the work we did and I feel quite proud about, um, you know, all the, you know, all the careers that were created through, what really essentially like become the university of hospitality in Melbourne now. Like if you want to like really push yourself, go and work there, go and try and, and, and do that and keep up. And like, I think that that's, you know, that's the, that's the thing. I remember talking to Andrew about it one day and saying, you know, look what, like really think about what we're doing here. Like what we're creating is, is a learning ground for all the next, yeah, the next great chefs to sort of, or the next you know great front of house operators to go and do their own things, and and it's really evolved that way. I mean, look at the evolution of a lot of people have sort of gone through those businesses, and they come out the other side, and you come out with the actual ability to actually run a business. You know, you come out with the ability to run a kitchen. You know, it's not like you come out and you're just completely burnt out. You know, like uh, yeah, it's hard definitely hard i'm not going to say it's not it's not a a walk in the park at all like i worked at cumulus for eight years and like i think i ended up with ptsd after that i can't even uh, i find it hard going in there sometimes because i'm like oh what about this what about that my god but like because you're they are that that sort of level like it it drives you to be to be um to be really good i think like and i think that's a good thing i think we need to we need to be driven to be good at what we do, you know, like otherwise, like what's the point of doing it if you're not trying to be good at it, you know? And I think uh, th- thankfully for myself, Andrew always sort of saw that in me. Like, so he would always 
you know, come to me with another project before it was, you know, before I walked, you know, walked out to try and do something else. Like there would always be, you know, there was Cumulus and then there was Cumulus Up and then have a go at Marion. And like, so like I, I was, th- I, I thank him for, you know, allowing me to take on those projects and, and run them the way that I did when I did. So, you know, it's sort of, it's certainly, um, it always pushed me. I always sort of took on the idea of just saying yes, <laughs> because like, what's the point of saying no? Like, it's just like, well, of course I'm going to say yes, because it's going to open up, open up an opportunity for me to try and grow myself. So I think that that's, um, yeah, I was really blessed to be able to, uh, you know, give those, those venues a go and, and try and work through, uh, you know, how you, how do you, you know, work through the process of how you create a venue that actually works. You know, that's that's the really interesting process for myself is like how do you bring all these things together, all these multiple moving parts to actually make them operate in a way that's um, you know, symbiotic in, in terms of actually, you know, functioning as a functional unit uh, of a business, you know. Running a restaurant means having a sixth sense for what's happening beneath the surface constantly solving problems and anticipating the next catastrophe. What kind of problems has Andy Joy encountered and what's his approach to averting disaster? Unfortunately, I've got like a sixth sense for it. Like when I go into a place, you know, I can automatically feel that something might not be correct. And it quite often worries me. I'm like, oh, why are we here? Hang on a sec, something's going to go wrong. But like, it's like, it's also, uh, it's like a hypervigilance you get when you sort of run those, those sort of things. Like you become so aware of everything um and you know it's a it's a blessing and a curse in that regard because it's quite difficult to relax as well it could be any catastrophe really i mean i've I've dealt with some real doozies over the years like you know uh greatest i think the the craziest one i had was a uh like a, a fuse an old really old fuse box in um in cumulus like a, a, a transformer catching fire and losing power on a friday night in a heat wa- in a heat wave you know like and so the whole place just goes you know blacks out and uh, there's an acrid smell of smoke in the air and you're like oh this is interesting how do i get you know 150 people out of a venue you know now quietly safely you know and what do you do you know this and i think the funniest one at cumulus or at, uh, at carlton winery was um we lost water one night. Yeah, because a car hit. A car ran into a main along, you know, Elgin Street or something like that, or ran into a fire hydrant or something. So they had to shut the water down. So, and the building was completely full. So there's 170 people in there, you know, that needed water, plus toilets needed flushing, plus all these things. So I think. You know, you launch into automatic, uh, you know, uh, emergency mode, and you know, I think we bought every single bottle of water at the local supermarket, and that, you know, <laughs> and I think we we're actually we were we we're flushing toilets with with uh, mineral water at one point. Yeah, it's like, yeah, this is crazy. So yeah, like it's just like those sort of catastrophes are just the things that you sort of um, they're always something will always happen, you know, and I think you just got to be ready to deal with whatever that might be, and that's. That's the thing, you know. As a business owner, Andy's approach to success is built on nurturing a good culture. Business isn't nuts and bolts. It's life and breath and heart. 
So I always look at a business as as a, like it's a living thing, right? So that living thing provides a life for those that work there. So I I don't see it as a simple outcome of we make money, the investors get their cash, end of story. I see it as we work together, everybody maintains their jobs, they get to live stable lives. The return for that to the investors is a stable income uh, that is, you know, a dividend that is returned to them at the end of each month. But what you do in terms of culture is that you make sure that you turn up every day and you make sure that it's calm. There's an open, you know, open platform for discussion. Um, there's no shutting people down. There's no yelling. We don't do any of that stuff. Um, and also just you got to breathe that through into your training as well. So Travis Howe, my business partner, does all the training and he runs an amazing wine program. Uh, so every Tuesday there's a, a an in-depth one-hour training on wine for all the staff. And that's the other thing as well. It's like I think if you look at like wine training particularly, it's always been something that I've noticed that it is quite often guarded by a certain section of a restaurant, which I've always thought is really redundant because like why why keep that knowledge to one section? There's no point. You should be sharing that knowledge and sharing it evenly because everybody wants to know about wine, like, you know, staff, customers. I mean, we've even got a chef that sits in on our wine training because she's interested. So it's just like, why not open it up? Like, so I think that that's, that's, the, that's probably the, the one training sort of aspect that I look at that is like, don't hold knowledge, let it all out, let everybody be, be part of it. Like, I think it's really, really important. And if they want to learn, let them learn, you know, so... I think that's that's the main thing that I sort of look at. But also, like, in terms of the other cultural side of things, I mean, full-timers, we try to keep them on four days a week instead of doing the five and all that sort of stuff. And, like, it's just about creating, a, like, we all talk about work-life balance, but it's really important that when you say that, you do it, right? It's just, it's not, I don't think we can continue the way we have for you know decades and decades where we just work ourselves to the bone and everyone just ends up not enjoying what they do because there's no longevity in that none at all like you will literally burn yourself out and um i think it's important that you know they're they're given that right to live a life um which in turn will help support the business because they're going to be happy you know Balancing the books and ensuring a decent margin is essential to running a restaurant, but squeezing staff hours and wages is not the way to make it happen. A large part of the solution, says Andy, is being honest with yourself as an owner. You need to be actively involved in managing all of your cost centres. Like if you're not actively involved in managing every single cost centre, then of course you're going to have problems because you, 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 can, you can fail easily in any of them. Right. If you're paying too much for the wine, if you're not marking up correctly, if you're, you know, if your food costs are blowing out because like the dishes are aren't costed properly, of course you're going to have problems. Like you need to be, like it's it's not as easy as just opening the doors and then you know just selling the food and that's it. You've got to actually make sure that that is costed correctly so that it, it does create a margin that can be worked with. Like it's just about I like like not being lazy with those things, you know, and 
it's not fair and not good enough for us as operators to go, well, the, you know, the, the wages are always going to be the problem. So I'm just going to make sure that I'm getting everything out of my full timers and work them to the bone because like, it's our responsibility to make sure that our business can actually support that wage cost. That's it. Like it's, that's our responsibility. So once you just got to get, look at all your cost centers and make sure that they're all tuned properly. You know, that's, that's the thing. Otherwise it's, it's one will just devour the other, you know? Um, so it's, yeah, it's about being actively involved with that and, and being across it. I mean, there's no, there's no silver bullet. Like, I mean, yeah, it's it, revenue is revenue, you know? So you need to be, I think also honest with yourself about where that revenue might lie and, and where, where it can be improved as well. And also costing to, to that revenue and also making sure that you're not, sort of trying to blind yourself to the fact that you might not have enough revenue, you know, you know, when you don't have enough revenue, then you need to look at where your expenditure is. So that's it. The restaurant industry award may not be perfect and there's an argument for restructuring it, but grappling with penalties and loadings can also lead to rethinking business practices such as opening hours and menu prices. Um, I, look, I, th- I think that there needs to be a- another conversation around wages for the hospitality industry. I do think that there is uh, potentially um, a misunderstanding or like an operational misunderstanding from the government's perspective. I think that we 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 do have issues in terms of that. I, I'm not sure that the you know the current sort of uh, loadings and things like that actually are. Are set up perfectly well for you know the businesses that we have, but once again, it gets back to the idea that you might not have to run a seven day a week business. You know, if like if you can get away with running it four days a week, do so. You know, because you run into penalties and things like that when you you operate you know outside the norm. You know, so your Sunday rates are always going to be higher. You know, all of these things, public holidays. Like, should we be opening public holidays? And I look at the wage cost on a public holiday and yeah, it's really high, but you know, I think once again, you can pass on a part of that cost. You can use surcharges. It's not illegal to do so. You can use those things. Um, I think there needs to be another conversation with, you know, restaurant catering industry uh, association and the government. And we, we need to have a bit more of a round table look at wages and where they're heading but also it might might come to the fact that we need to look at the way things are priced. You know, this is going to eventually need to be passed on to the customers at some point. Uh, and, you know, it's, if you look at, like, take the price of coffee, you know, a cup of coffee, like look at the, I don't think it's changed in the past 10 years, but there's been an indexed wage increase pretty much every year for the past 10 years. So, like, where where's the, who's going to wear it? you know, and where's it going to fall? I think that's the, that's the thing that needs to be addressed and looked at, you know? Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, there's a, there's one thing that people, yes, customers do need to get value, but also I think there's a point where customers need to understand that, you know, these costs need to, to come out in the wash at some point somewhere. Um, yeah, that's what I think. But yeah. Andy's staff are key to his business. He's also close to them as people. So how did he cope when his head chef, Connor, told him about a terrible health crisis? I was delivering some wine to a customer up in um, Pasco Vale 
and he, he rang me and he, the first thing he said was, don't get angry. And I'm like, what in God's name am I going to get angry about? Because I thought he, I'm thinking, oh Christ, he's going to, he's going to resign, you know, like we've just been, this is like towards the end of the last lockdown. And so I was sitting in the car and he said, uh, I had, a, I had a seizure on um, grand final day and it turns out that I've got a brain tumor to which I promptly broke down and started crying. I was like, what, what do you mean? Like you've got a brain tumor. And, um, He's like, yeah, and he, but he was so calm about it that it was really, like, disarming. Like, it was amazing. Like, he um, was so level that I just was automatically like, well, what are we going to do? Like, how do we, how do we continue your work life? How do we make sure that you're going to be, you know, happy and healthy and and getting through this with the best possible care you can, and and make sure that we can, you know, sustain your you know, your life, like what, what do we need to do? So yeah, we just sort of started to make a plan from there about, you know, how we're going to manage it through January, February when the operation is. And, um, it, yeah, it was pretty like, I, um, it was a, it was a, oh, just from a personal level, I think he's such a great guy that it sort of affected me in that way more than anything else. He's quite young, you know? Um, but, uh, as a, you know, from a business perspective, it's just about how do you help, the health of this individual so that they can continue the work, great work that they do for us. I mean, and that's the, that's the outcome. And um, so, yeah, what we're doing is just trying to, you know, make it um, as, as good for him as it possibly can be so that we can, you know, both sustain the business and sustain, you know, his, his role and also make sure that he gets through it. Okay. And comes out the other side. So I'll probably buy him a yoga membership so he can sort of uh, start chilling out a little bit, you know, uh, but it, yeah, I just it's it's it it was a big shock, um, but we're all sort of we've been sort of just rallied around as a team to sort of just support him in whatever he needs to get through it, um, and that's that's I think what you should do as a as a team is um, just make sure everyone's good and everyone's on the same page and just move forward, you know, because you don't really there's no other options. You got to move forward. Like you can't sort of get stuck with things because restaurants are too dynamic to get stuck on anything. Melbourne has done it tough through the pandemic, enduring six lockdowns, three of them months long. What's it been like for Andy to close and reopen his restaurant so many times? And how has the experience changed him? I've got to admit, in that last lockdown, I I certainly had a, a point where I was just like, I don't know if I have the energy to come back and do this for a seventh time to open up this restaurant for a seventh time because I sort of I was about out at the farm quite a lot during the last lockdown, working, um, literally digging poles out of the ground and putting them back in, which is the most Sisyphean task you've ever seen in your life. I think I, I removed something like thirteen hundred. I don't know how it was just crazy, so many, um, but. Yeah. Like, yeah, I sort of it's having some very existential sort of moments with that. But um, how the whole thing has been all together, it's been really surreal. Like, it's just been weird. Like, you know, you sort of come in and out of these lockdowns and you're sort of like, yeah, here we go again and we're, we're good now. And then you're just like, here, just hoping that you can sort of get some sort of run at it. And then... You know, it gets taken away again, and then you're just sort of taking these body shots left, right, and center, just going, "Oh man, like, are we doing this again? Is this what we're doing again?" And like, you know, I mean, I, I remember in the first 
you know, the first sort of hint of it came around. And, like, I'd done so much reading about it coming through December of um, 2019. I was really quite wary going into January. I was like, oh, no, it didn't, it doesn't, you know, it didn't sit right. Something was really, really wrong. And um, I remember sending an email around to the partners sort of saying, oh, this is, you know, something coming. This doesn't look really good. And and then, you know, as it you know, rolled out into March, um, yeah, it eventuated into what it eventuated into. And, like, I, I never in my wildest dreams thought that, you know, in my first business that I'd have to stand down, you know, 33-odd staff members in one go, Um and really with no idea of when they'd actually be able to come back or when that would actually, you know, when that thing would actually stop. Because, like, uh, it, it didn't, to me, like, I think we were sort of going into that first lockdown, going, oh, yeah, it's going to be cool, like, you know, a couple of months maybe or, you know, whatever it was like, or I think they even proposed that it would be even less than that, you know. And I was like, something in me was just like, I just don't think this is going to be as quick as we really think it's going to be. And, you know, I you know, my staff will attest to it that I'm, I, I, I am an emotional man and I uh, got quite emotional standing them down and I, I couldn't go through with it. I, I couldn't talk. I just, I, cause I just didn't, I just knew that we we're heading into something that was going to be a lot longer than we probably thought it really would be. So, um, yeah, I, yeah, that was a really tough moment for me that, that, that day. And, uh, yeah, it's been a, a huge, a huge learning curve and, and also just like having to, um, like deal with government changes and, you know, trying to follow all the policies and everything about it is just, it's just been an operational nightmare. Like it's just like you're just waiting to, you know, to see the next thing that might be not quite right or whatever. But I think I sort of taken the the view, you know, this last one is just sort of like sit back and whatever is whatever it is. Like you, you can't, you can't predict it. You can't, try and force your own view on things you need to just sort of be able to sit back and and take what it is because you know nothing nothing is concrete you know it might you know everything could be great one second and then all of a sudden it won't be you know so i think it's just it's it's like the ultimate disaster has happened and we've sort of amazingly all come through it and I'm so grateful to the team that we have because they've come through it so well and they're actually just the most positive bunch of humans ever but I think it's a it's it's been an incredible learning curve, that's for sure. I think I'm probably an overthinker in a lot of ways, um, so I sort of delve too deep into it, and then you sort of add that to having you know an, a, a decent chunk of money sunk into something, and then you're like, well, that's that's a that's not an easy thing to extract from that now. Like you sort of you've got this thing that's basically getting mothballed, you know, every what for six or seven times it got mothballed and I'd you know quite often go in there and just sort of sit and you know sit in the space while it was closed and be like oh it's it's very different when it's not in here it's quite weird and and you're like you've got to think that every time you you open it you're having to breathe life into this thing again so you're breathing this life back into it but that takes a toll on you personally as well because like you've got to you've got to you know face up to that every time and that's the energy involved in it is is massive, you know. And um, with, like, thankfully, though, you know, obviously got great support around me, and you know, my, uh, my brother for one, who um, I ended up living with during the first lockdown because I was 
at the first lockdown, I was in a one-bedroom apartment in Carlton, and he's like, well, you're not staying there. I'm like, well, that would be good. So we um, ended up going out to his place and, and uh, helping him with his kids and well, because he works for he works for a bank and his wife's a lawyer, so they sort of work from home and that was cool for me because I just got to cook and hang out with my niece and nephew, which is pretty sweet. Um, but you know, I think that you know, just that the pressure that I think was that was put on. I, I think I probably put it more on myself than anybody else really putting it on me to to be the one that sort of was trying to face up to to bring this thing back and you know. Travel, so you know, we we both sort of uh, felt it, I guess. Um, but you know, Trav had his, you know, Trav had a baby during that time. You know, <laughs> so he, he had a lot. He had a lot of stuff going on, and probably a lot more than me. So yeah, I, I think for me it was. Um, I don't know. Just for me, it's just thinking about the employees. Like it's just like, how do I keep this thing alive to keep these people employed? And that's that's the thing that would always weigh on me was that. And like every time that they would shut us down again, that would be the thing that would hit me first of all. I'd be like, "Well, what are we, what are we going to do? Like, what are we going to do? For, like, how? Like, how's this?" And then, you know, particularly with the before the JobKeeper stuff was announced and all that sort of stuff, that was a really hard time because I was just like, "How? Like, what are what are we going to do? Like, financially for all these people, what's going to happen?" And I, I, I think that government scheme was really great. Like, that was a an absolute load off my mind when they released that. That was great, but um. I think uh, I think our decision to close and not doing was actually the best decision. Like to not try and do any takeaway stuff, both from a, like a health perspective, but also just from a business perspective as well. I think um, you know takeaway was never our thing as well. So uh, you know it's just yeah, I think that that's you know I think we maintained ourselves quite well in that regard from a business operation point of view by not doing anything was, 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 was the best thing. But, um, yeah, personally, I think that I probably, um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's been a real roller coaster. but like, I, like I've literally, I've got to say I'm quite lucky in that I've had, you know, the ability to go and do my other job, which is the vineyard, sleep in my swag, cook over a fire and have some time to reflect and, and, you know, be you know more in my you know more with myself you know which has been a kind of a blessing in that like I have spent the last god nearly 20 years of my life taking care of other people you know it's kind of a that that's been a blessing you know I think is is to be able to sit and just be with myself for a while you know you know, I think, and the other, the other great support actually was from Andrew, like McConnell. He, I remember having a conversation with him, you know, early on in the piece of, in probably, you know, mid 2020. And he just said, you know, that the good ones will, will be okay. Like we'll be fine. And, and to have him just ring me and tell me that was, was really quite good. You know, like that, that buoyed me quite a lot because as my mind is, I was just racing to the point where, you know, what if this doesn't come back? What if we don't get through this? You know, what what happens then? You know, but we're we're very lucky in that we are, we have got through. So I'm 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 grateful for that. The last couple of years have been incredibly challenging. They've also offered an opportunity to reflect. For Andrew Joy, it's been a prompt to think about the real meaning of restaurants, the important place they hold in a city and how they can help build its future. I don't know. I just think probably from a perspective of 
like Melbourne going forward. Like I think this is what we need to really talk about as a restaurant industry, um, and talk about what we bring to the, you know, what we bring to the uh, table for Melbourne is a cultural thing. I think like, I mean, I I don't know if anyone you know if anybody had the great opportunity to walk through Melbourne when it was actually in lockdown, but to see the city so dead was just like eye opening, and it made me really think about what restaurants do and what they are and, and how they are these, you know, gathering places for a populace of a great city, you know, to come together and enjoy themselves in our great city. And I think that that's like, we need to not lose sight of that. Like, I think it's like, yeah, we can all be like individual business operators and we're like, oh, we're, you know, we're out to make some money and that's what we're doing, blah, blah, blah. But what I think we really need to concentrate on is just what we actually bring to this town of ours, which is a great place. And what we bring is a vibrancy and a, and a, and a meeting place, a place for discussion of ideas, you know, and, uh, and the enjoyment of great wine, great food. Yes. All of those things. But what we need to do is, is now we've, we've been able to, you know, maintain our businesses and get them back up and running and all that sort of stuff. And now it's time to breathe life back into our city itself. And I think that's the thing that I really sort of focus on and, and just the community we have in Carlton itself. That's what I, I like. And that's, you know, I think like I, I had a real moment sort of coming back to that, you know, first service after um, the last lockdown. I was just like, and I like, I didn't want to work on the floor because like, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm ready for this yet. Like, so I did the pot wash. I, put on a pair of shorts and boots and put on a, an apron. I, I washed dishes, which I think the guys in the kitchen thought was really funny. And I thought it was really good. And I enjoyed it. But just sort of, you know, walking around and just sort of greeting those first few people like, and the customers thought it was pretty funny me walking out in a, you know, plastic apron and a pair of boots and shorts on. But it, like just to be able to take care of people is just the absolute, the greatest thing ever. And to have someone walk away and thank you for their experience, just because you might have changed someone's day just that little bit, you know, like just that little bit you've just you've just often experienced where they've just taken a little bit of respite from the world. Like that's what we're here for. And I think that, that we need to, to really re-engage with that idea as restaurants. It's just like we're here as places of respite from what has been an absolutely crap two years. So let's get back into the business of being, you know, hospitable. We've been talking with Andrew Joy, co-owner with Travis Howe of Carlton Wine Room. This is the second episode of five in our deep dive mini-series at 172 Faraday Street, Carlton, building a rounded picture of a restaurant by talking to five of its protagonists. Join us again tomorrow when we hear from just qualified chef Bethan Williamson. If you like what you're listening to, don't forget to review and rate us so more people get to hear it. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This